Well, yeah, if you would turn to the book of Colossians. Yeah, we've taken a bit of a break um, from our Letters from Prison series as we went through the parables in the summer and then over the beginning of the fall here, we've done our Things to Come series, which I hope you've been really encouraged and blessed by. And I pray and trust that you are equally excited now just to get back into the book of Colossians, studying through this verse by verse chapter to chapter. And uh, this is going to be a, a great time together. Now, Paul, this Letters from Prison series, Paul wrote from a house arrest in Rome where he was there for two years. He wrote this letter to the church of Colossus probably in 60 to 62 AD, somewhere around there while he was in prison in Rome. And while he was in prison in Rome, he also wrote three other books of the Bible that, uh, you know, brought together this collection of the letters from prison, the prison epistles. It's Ephesians, Philippians, and Philemon, as well as Colossians, which we're getting into here today. Now, this is quite astonishing because some of you might look at the situation and think, man, this is surprising that a guy like Paul, one of the great, you know, spiritual superstars of scripture, you know, how could anything like this befall Paul. Paul's a guy that's been faithful to the Lord, right? He's been living this life to serve the Lord and to be used of the Lord, and yet we see that things weren't always Pleasantville for Paul. Some of us might look at this and go, man, I thought if I really surrender my life to Jesus, if I really live faithfully to the Lord, that man, my life is just going to be taken care of, that everything's going to be provided for. I'm not going to have any difficulties I'm not going to have any hardships. There's not going to be anything pushing back against me. How many wish that Christian life was like that? And yet we see the reality is that it's not so. If a guy like Paul is going to go through trials, then I think we can all assume that this is something that God's going to allow in most of our lives. But why so? You see, oftentimes these trials and difficulties bring us to a point in our life where we have no other resource or recourse but to lean heavily on the Lord, to trust in Him. And when we're doing that, guess what? It becomes opportunities for God to move, to work, and for Him to be glorified. You see, Paul's sitting in Rome here. He's sitting under house arrest, and he's not sulking. He's not questioning God. His faith doesn't waver. Why? Because Paul lived in a way where he said, my life is for the glory of God. Paul lived in a way where he said, whatever I might encounter, I wanna just live so that God would be glorified in my life. And so in whatever trial, whatever difficulty would come his way, Paul goes, here's an opportunity for God to be glorified. He knew that in his own weakness, Christ's strength would be made all the more known to him and no doubt through him where Jesus could be seen all the more. Oftentimes it's in our weaknesses and it's in those trials that we have to lean heavily on the Lord that we recognize, man, I can't do this on my own where God is all along saying, no duh, that's what I've been trying to make you realize. And now through this trial, you're gonna see how my strength is gonna be sufficient for you. And it's done in a way where God gets all the glory. That's what we should be living for. So much so that Paul, while he's in prison, could be writing a book like Philippians. And who remembers? A little review for you. Who remembers what the theme of Philippians was all about? Joy. joy. Awesome. The book of joy. Guess what? Today we've got treats for right answers. <laughs> there you go, Norm. 
Who else said joy? Somebody over there said joy. Catch. Somebody over there said joy. Somebody over there said joy. CJ, you missed that. Who said joy over there? Somebody I know did. All right. There might be more questions. Be ready. We'll see. But you see, Paul has this attitude where he's like, it's just all for the Lord to where he could say, even though I'm in prison, I don't have to sulk. I don't have to question God. Paul would write in Philippians that, you know what? He's seeing the advancement of the gospel go forth in even greater ways because now people are rising up. Sometimes they were doing so with wrong intentions, but yet the gospel is going out. And in that, Paul said, I can rejoice. God's at work even through this. And that's how we need to, I think, understand our lives is that no matter what we might encounter, God is still at work and God will use that and work through it. If we live in a way where we say, God, I don't wanna get upset. I don't wanna get down. I wanna see what you're gonna do through this. And oftentimes, it's not so much saying, God, get me out of this. Saying, God, what do you want me to get out of this? So Paul's writing here to the church at Colossus. Now, the city of Colossus was about 100 miles inland from Ephesus. It was at one point a very active and important city, but now at the time of Paul's writing, it began to wane a little bit in its influence. Now, uh, Colossus was located right near Heropolis and Laodicea. These three cities kind of became known as like this tri-city area. And like I said, they were very influential uh, for a time, Colossus especially, is it kind of sat on this major trade route where you'd see east and west kind of commerce flowing through, a lot of uh, activity and action taking place, and so it became a very central spot. But like I say, over the years, it began to fade from its prominent place. The other two cities, Hierapolis and Laodicea, continued to thrive, while Colossus, at the time of writing, had really become a shadow of its glory days. Nevertheless, Paul is writing to this church here. What's interesting is Paul has never visited Colossus. Paul was never there. Uh, becomes one of only two books that Paul wrote where he had not previously visited that place, Romans being the other one. And yet we see a church forming and getting established and, and doing well there in Colossus. How so? Why? How did a church come into being? Well, we remember when Paul was ministering in Ephesus, where he did for three years, the longest place that Paul had ever stayed in a location and ministered there. He's there for three years. And what we read in the book of Acts is that people began to come from all around, all around Asia there, which is modern day Turkey, where Coloss sits. And people came from all around. It says in Acts 19, uh, verse 9 and 10, that he, Paul, departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So it's believed that as Paul is ministering there, people from Coloss would come down and listen to the message being preached, these Bible studies that Paul was holding. One man would have been Epaphras, who came down and visited with Paul, heard him speaking in, in Ephesus, and no doubt just got transformed by the gospel and took it back to his town of Coloss, where a church was soon planted. Epaphras is mentioned a few times here in the book of Colossians, and, and especially in chapter 4, verse 12, Paul says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you always, laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God, verse 13, for I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and those in Hierapolis. So again, 
Here's Epaphras. He's ministering there in these regions and seeing people come to know the Lord and a church being planted. So though Colossus was on the decline and was just kind of a shadow of what it once was and was the least influential city that Paul ultimately wrote to, there was still a very specific and, and purposeful reason for writing this letter. What was that reason? Well, there was in Colossus was known as this, or what became known as this Colossian heresy. See, the church was primarily made up of Gentiles, and yet there were a crew of Jews living there as well. And this heresy began to infiltrate the church, and it was a combination of many things, Eastern philosophy, mysticism, astrology, angelology, Jewish legalism, and you threw in a bit of Christianity along with it as well. And this was really the start of what became known as the real first heresy of the church, Gnosticism. Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means to know. And thus, Gnostics were the people in the know who considered themselves, uh, considered themselves the spiritual elite. And according to them, it was by knowledge as opposed to faith that humanity was to be regenerated. Faith was suited only to the rude masses, the animal men. Gnostics held the basic doctrine that matter, physical or created, was evil and that only the spirit was good. They reasoned that God could not be involved in creation because being perfect, he couldn't touch matter, which was intrinsically evil. Therefore, the world, check this out, the world came into being through a complicated process as God put forth thousands of emanations or lesser gods, each of which was a little more distant from him so that finally there was an emanation or a little God so distant from God that it could touch matter and create the world. Of course, this lesser God of creation was so far removed from the ultimate one true God that it itself was evil. Now this reasoning led to the belief that Jesus Christ, if he really was the Son of God, could not have taken on a human body, the flesh, because matter is evil. So this was this teaching uh, that became known as Gnosticism. It began, uh, this Colossian heresy was kind of the beginnings of this Gnostic thinking. This delusion spawned the Gnostic romances about Jesus being only a ghost-like phantom. To the Gnostics, Christ was not creator. The, um, the incarnation was not real. And Christ wasn't enough. He was not fully God in their mind. John had a right against the same kind of thinking and teaching. And in 1 John, when he writes that Jesus is somebody that we have seen, we've touched, we felt, we've experienced him. He had to write and say that Jesus was not just some phantom-like spirit. He was fully God, yet fully man. See, these people began to say, when Jesus would walk along the beach, there'd be no footprints left behind because he's just like a ghost, right? But John says, no, he came in the flesh. We've experienced that. He is truly who he says he is. Now, there are two camps that kind of formed out of Gnosticism. There was the camp that held to a very ascetic kind of view where they denied the flesh completely, where they said the flesh is completely evil, so we've got to discipline ourselves and have nothing to do with the flesh. So they would fast often. They would deny themselves certain, you know, uh, pleasures that were, normal and acceptable, but they would deny themselves saying, we've got to live with a strict discipline against the flesh. But then there was the other camp that said, well, since flesh 
and everything matters all evil and only the spirit is good, well, we can just go ahead and do whatever we want then. If we indulge in the flesh, there's no redeeming it. It's, it's just evil anyway, so we can't stop it. So we can just indulge the flesh. We can do whatever we want. So there's these two camps, strict discipline against the flesh and the other camp that said, we can just go ahead and party on and live in the flesh and it's all good because the spirit is what really matters and the spirit is good. So these are what kind of grew out of Gnosticism and with this kind of heresy came a real spiritual snobbery because some believed that they were of a select group to obtain the secret knowledge which allowed them to move further down the line in proximity to God and attain to this close union and perfection with God. It was through this secret knowledge that you could keep growing and become closer and closer to God. It's no different today when you see groups touting some secret revelation that they've received and if you're not with them, then you're really missing it. Where the the word of God isn't enough on its own. That this is not the substantial truth that we have. They say, oh no, you need special revelation. We've, We've got secret tablets that can reveal you know, hidden messages for us, or we've got a a different message from an angel that has really clarified things for us. If you begin to have groups coming along, which is what, you know, these various cults do today, they come along and they begin to diminish Jesus Christ. And they say, you gotta have a secret knowledge here now and understanding to really be spiritual and to be close to God. There's gotta be quick Immediate red flags when you see people coming along that diminish Jesus Christ or say that you yourself can become like God. You need to put the brakes on that and say, that's not what the word of God teaches. And this is the truth that I stand upon. And this has been the trick of the enemy right from day one. In the Garden of Eden, when he begins to get Eve to question, did God really say that? Oh no, he just knows that you'll become like God. Eat of this fruit. And you have secret knowledge. You'll become like God. And we see that same kind of trick of the enemy, you know, influencing cults and false teachings today. Saying, oh, no, it's just the word's not enough. Jesus isn't enough. You, you can have much more than that. Ultimately, with Jesus Christ being diminished in the eyes of these Colossian believers, Paul sets out now in the book of Colossians to proclaim the ultimate supremacy now of Jesus Christ in every way. That Jesus is all that is necessary in life. Over and above Jewish legalism, over and above Gnostic beliefs, and over and above any other human philosophy, which all are empty, inadequate, and unfulfilling. Jesus is the one that reigns over all that, that is supreme that is greater than. The theme of Colossians then is the preeminence of Christ. That Jesus is not just enough, but that he is far superior and greater than anything else. Nothing else compares. Jesus is it. He's the pinnacle. He's the top. He is supreme. And he has the preeminence. And just like we saw in in much of Paul's writings, especially in the book of Ephesians and many of his writings, Paul would always break down his letters oftentimes by revealing doctrine first, presenting the truth for you, start with doctrinal issues, and then move into practical truths for us. Doctrine, then practical. The book of Colossians is no different where we see the outline here. Chapters one and two is the doctrinal where it's 
Christ's preeminence being declared to the church. Chapters three and four is the practical, where it's Christ's preeminence being demonstrated through the church. Now, interestingly, there's a lot of similarities between the book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians. However, the focus in Ephesians is the church of Christ. In Colossians, it's the Christ of the church. Ephesians focuses on the body of Christ, where it was made up of Jews and Gentiles, people from all different backgrounds, coming together in this perfect unity in Christ. It's the body of Christ, but then in Colossians, the focus becomes the head of the church. Not the the body, but rather the head, who is Christ. We're going to be looking closely at who Jesus is, the fullness of Christ, which Paul paints a wonderful picture, almost one of the greatest revelations of that supremacy of Christ that we have in the New Testament here. Jeffrey Wilson said this, as therefore this epistle forms one of the peaks in the New Testament revelation of Christ, all who desire to reach a correct understanding of his person must resolve to scale its heights. The message of Colossians is that believers are complete in Christ. And I pray that you have a much clearer picture of Jesus Christ after we have gone through the book of Colossians here um, over the next few weeks here and that Jesus just so comes alive to you to see just the supremacy, the greatness, the beauty of Jesus, that he is not just enough, but he is greater, so much greater than everything else. Look at chapter one here. Paul begins saying, verse one, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Coloss, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So what we see is, is very uh, common with you know, writings in the New Testament is that the author always identifies himself right off the bat. Paul very clearly here just states that he's the author of this letter. As they're sending out, you know, a scroll that's being written, it'd be very difficult to kind of have to unravel the scroll and try to see who's writing this letter. Right away, they identify themselves. So they open it up and they go right away, I don't know who this letter's from. And now I know whether or not I want to keep reading or, or not. Hopefully they want to keep reading when they hear they got a letter from Paul here. So Paul identifies himself and he identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's important because an apostle was one that was sent out, commissioned with a message. And Paul was the man that was sent out. Now, he oftentimes was challenged in his apostleship by various places that he would visit and churches he'd go to. People would like to challenge him and try to, you know, take away that authority of, of Paul. But Paul says, listen, I'm an apostle and this is not by my own doing. This is not me kind of going through, uh, you know, uh, a list of careers, what would be most advantageous for me, what's going to have the best retirement plan. This is not me picking and choosing what I want to do. Paul says, I'm an apostle and it's of Jesus Christ or by Jesus Christ, it's by the will of God. Paul says, this is not something I've chosen for myself. That becomes very clear as you, you know the, the story of Paul as he's on his way to Damascus and he's looking to persecute Christians. And he's thinking he's doing so as a favor to God, thinking that this sect of believers in Jesus is not right. They are walking in, in contradiction and rebellion to God. So he's thinking, I'm gonna imprison them. I'm gonna kill them if need be. This is what Paul was doing. 
and it's on the road to Damascus. You know the story. He gets knocked off his high horse, literally. He gets taken down, and the Lord meets him right there. And the Lord begins to commission Paul and call him to be a minister to the Gentiles and ultimately to to everybody that Paul came in contact with. He would not shy away from sharing the gospel, but he knew and saw that this was that calling of the Lord, commissioned by God to be an apostle, one that was sent out with the gospel. You know, we, we like to look at the disciples or the, the apostles, you know, the 12 apostles, and that's it. But we're all called to go out into the world with the good news. We're all called to kind of fulfill that role as as an apostle, sent out with the good news. We have the truth that this world needs to hear. And I pray that we have a heart to go out and to share that with people. Now, I like this that Paul says, it's by the will of God. You know, we can really agonize and wrestle over that question, can't we, oftentimes? Finding out the will of God for my life. What is the will of God? And, and we can really think that that will of God is just so specific and narrow. Like, is this, is this person God's will for my life? Am I to be married? You know, don't use that as a, as a pickup line. I've just been praying and God just says that you're to be my wife. I've heard people do that. Maybe not the way you want to start things off, right? You know, but we, we agonize, like, is this the will of God for my life here? Is this the person I'm to be with? Or is, is this the job I'm to have? Is this the place I'm to live? And we can wrestle over all these things. And we, like Paul, would love to have that same experience where it's like we're just driving to work one day and the Lord just stops our car right in the middle of the road and just says, what are you doing working this dead-end job? Man, I have something better for you. Here's what I've got for you. And then he would just make so clear for us. We would love to have that experience, right? But it doesn't always happen. And we can wrestle over these things. What's the will of God for my life? But can I just say, and you can challenge me on this. I might be off on this, but I, I truly believe that the Lord is much more concerned with who you are than what you're doing and where you are. And you see, when you take care of who you are, in other words, saying, Lord, I just want to live, like we saw Paul earlier in prison, he's saying, God, here's an opportunity to live for the glory of God. If we're living for the glory of God, saying, whatever I do, I just want to be a witness of you. I want my life to reflect you, Jesus. So wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, Lord, may you be evident in my life and seen Then I believe God is totally happy with that. And when we take care of who we are, it's going to take care of a lot of where we are and what we're doing. And the Lord surely will, will direct us, no doubt. And he'll make clear those specific things. But I think oftentimes the Lord's not so concerned, you know, like where we're going, okay, I've got opportunity to, to move to Denver or to move to Hawaii. Lord, which one should it be? The Lord's probably going, I mean, have you been to Hawaii? Obviously, go to Hawaii. I mean, but I think it's like, it doesn't matter so much, Lord's just going, whether you move to Denver or whether you move to Hawaii, just live for me in that setting and in whatever you're doing. Glorify me in that. That's what the Lord is pleased with, I believe. So, Let's relax a little bit on those things. I heard a story of a speaker that was presenting Christ to a large audience on one of the great university campuses. One of the professors in the audience was really stricken by the power of the message and the calm and peaceful appearance of the speaker. 
Leaving the auditorium, the professor said to a fellow professor that was walking with him, I suppose that preacher spends most of his time in study and preparation of sermons away from the tensions and the strains of this busy world of ours. Well, his friend said, would you like to meet the speaker? The fellow professor asked, and he said, I, I know him quite well. And, and so the professor said, man, I would love to meet him. So a meeting was arranged and scheduled for the next day over lunch. And how shocked that professor was when he was taken to a snack room in one of the local factories. Sitting at the table with the speaker, he asked the speaker about his profession. The speaker said this, my occupation is to do the will of God and to love people while I wait for Christ to return to earth. Meanwhile, I operate one of the machines here at the factory. That's exactly it. The point is this, a person does not have to be a great preacher to be in the will of God or to be doing these great things to be in the will of God. No, your profession is to do the will of God and to be a strong witness for Christ no matter where God places you. So Paul here, apostle by the will of God, and notice he says to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in class. So when he mentions Timothy there, our brother Timothy was with Paul in Rome there. He's ministering to him. He's being an encouragement to him as Timothy was with Paul on many of his journeys. And Paul was very helpful. He's not a co-author of the letter. Some people might think that he's writing this with Paul. Uh, very likely Paul's dictating this to Timothy as he's writing it down here. But Timothy was there in Rome with Paul just encouraging him. And, and Paul says now in verse two, to the saints and the faithful brethren in Christ. To the saints. Now we've made a lot a big deal of that term saints, right? We look at saints as kind of being, oh, that's only like the real, you know, spiritual superpowers, the real elite in the church, you know, or, or the Catholic church has made the saints, you know, those people that have had some significant work and miracle in their life and they're, they're honored to sainthood after they're dead, you know, and we think, okay, do I have to, you know, is it when I die I become a saint? Like, who are these saints that Paul's writing to here? Well, we've made a big deal about that term saints, but that word saint is simply just that Greek word hagios, which is where we get the same word holy. And the word holy means simply to be set apart. You see, very ordinary, normal things, you think of some of the, the uh, vessels or furnishings that were in the tabernacle. They were very, or in the temple, they were very ordinary things, but they were holy. Why? Because they were set apart for the use of the Lord. So in other words, as believers today, when we're in Christ and we're set apart for Christ, you're a saint. You're set apart. You're in Christ. You're a saint. This is not something to reach to a level like a uh, you know power up level that you get to after fulfilling certain requirements. You know you become a saint. No, you're a saint when you are in Christ and set apart for Christ. I love what J. Vernon McGee says. You're either a saint or an ain't. There's one or the other. He says if you ain't an ain't, then you're a saint. So receive that today. If you're in Christ, you're a saint. Go around telling people, I am saint so-and-so. I wouldn't do that, actually. That's probably not. You, you, then you get knocked down out of sainthood. But, you know, but that's what you could call yourself. You're a saint today because you are in Christ, set apart for the Lord. What a glorious thing that is. And so Paul's writing these people. They are in Christ. They're faithful brethren in Christ. And that's ultimately what it means to be faithful is just to be remaining in Christ, isn't it? That's what the Lord is waiting for, looking for, is just faithfulness. That's what he, he requires of us is to be faithful. And to be faithful means that you are just remaining in Christ. And you're serving him, you're living for him. But notice here, 
These are faithful brethren that are in Christ who are in Colossus, it says. They're in Christ and they're in Colossus. This is kind of that dual position of the Christian. And it's important that we remember that. That though we're in this world, we're not to be of this world. This is not our permanent home, our permanent address. We might be in Langley or in Surrey or Maple Ridge or Abbotsford. We might be in these places, but ultimately we are in Christ, seated in the heavenly places with him. Our position spiritually is with Christ in heaven. And so we have this dual position here. That's why we're not to let these things of the world drag us down. Oh, we might be here for a time, but ultimately our permanent residence is in Christ. Then Paul launches into just this famous and often used greeting here at the end of verse two, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul would oftentimes use this greeting, grace and peace. And it's the common greeting of the day, grace being the Greek greeting, charis, and peace being the Hebrew greeting, shalom. And Paul would always use it in this order, and that's very important. These are like known as the Siamese twins of scripture. Grace and peace, why? Because you cannot know the peace of God until you experience the grace of God. You know, I talked to a lot of Christians today that wrestle with the peace of God, wrestle with that idea of understanding, you know, when you die, are you going to heaven? I talked to a lot of believers that really wonder. They don't have a confident or assured response to that answer or to that question. They're, they're lacking peace. Why? Because they haven't understood the grace of God. They're still in that place where they're thinking, I've got to earn my way. I'll be accepted by God if I do enough good or if I'm a good enough person, if I can be righteous enough in my ability or my works or my life, then I'll be accepted by God. And you see, they're striving on their own and they're lacking in peace with God because they never know, have I done enough? if they're living based on their own merit. But here's what grace does. Grace comes in and brings the unmerited favor of God. Grace is that free gift of salvation by which we understand Jesus came and died on a cross to forgive me of my sin, to make me righteous. And when we put our trust in Jesus, we're now in Christ, we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ which causes us to be accepted in the beloved, as Ephesians 1 tells us. God accepts us because we're now in Christ, not by what we do, not by our own righteousness, but because we are in Christ. And that's received through grace, that unmerited favor of God. So when you know grace and you experience the grace of God, man, you can rest at night in the peace of God, knowing that if I die, I'm gonna be with him in heaven for all of eternity. Because it's not by my works, it's by the work that's been done for me through Jesus and extended to me by the grace of God. That free gift. Have you experienced the grace of God today? Do you know God's grace? Do you have peace today in the Lord? Romans chapter five verse one says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you might have that peace of God, but you gotta know the grace of God and know that you're saved because of what he's done for you. Freely receive that today.
Well, verse three, we begin to see now this kind of gratitude of Paul coming out for this church. Notice he says in verse three, we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. Now what's interesting is that though this church had some issues to be dealt with and Paul's gonna get into that, he's gotta confront them on some of the things that they've gotten off track from. Paul extends this word of thanks for them. Thanks to God for them. Gratitude towards them. Paul was thankful for this church and thankful for what God has begun in them and he's been praying always for them. Do you see that at the end of verse three? Praying always for you. We might look at that and go, man, praying always, and we read elsewhere in scripture to pray without ceasing. You hear those things and you go, how am I supposed to do that? Pray without ceasing? Pray always? I mean, I'll pray when I remember, I'll pray, but I've got other stuff to do. I've got a job, I've got a family to attend to. I've got things that happen. I can't, I can't be stopping every minute to pray. I mean, Paul, like this guy, he doesn't have a career. He doesn't have a family as far as we know. In fact, he's in jail right now. He's in prison. He's got nothing but time to be praying without ceasing. I can't be handling that responsibility. We might think that way sometimes, right? But what does Paul mean when he says pray without ceasing or praying always? I think Paul is understanding the blessing of just knowing and having that constant consciousness of God being with them. See, for the believer, we have unlimited access to God to where we can just be communing with him in all things and in whatever we're doing. That's the beauty of prayer is that prayer does not have to be something that's done in the church or done with a certain posture. Like I've got to get down on my hands and my knees and I got to stop and pray. It's like, you know, kids are, are freaking out, messing up the kitchen, and like, I can't deal with that right now. I gotta pray. I haven't prayed today, I gotta pray. It's like, no, whatever you're doing, you're just living with that understanding of the presence of God with you and the open door of communication with God. And so whatever I'm doing, whether you're driving to work, whether you're out for a walk with the family, you can just be communing with God and just praying. You don't have to be, you know, Praying in your car, it doesn't have to be eyes closed, we think prayer has to be a certain posture. Don't try that, praying, I, I tried praying in my car, I've gone through five cars now, Brent, what's the deal? I mean, help me out here, what am I doing wrong? Well, keep your eyes open for one, right? That's okay, see, we get this idea like prayer has to be this specific kind of form or posture, and yet it's just having that constant consciousness of God and just praying, speaking with him, and being with him, that's the beauty of prayer, is it's just being with God in communion and union and in fellowship with him and it's bringing these things to the Lord. Thanking God for what you're experiencing that day, thanking God for your church, thanking God for this person, praying for this person. It's just, whatever you're doing, we can just be in communion with God. That's the beauty of it. That's the idea of pray without ceasing and Paul is praying regularly for this church. Now notice the things that Paul is motivated by in giving thanks to God for them. He says there, since, verse four, since we heard of your faith, right, in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints and because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. What are three things that stand out for you there? Three words. Say that again. Faith, hope, and love. There it is, guys. 
Here you come. Watch out, Natalie. Who else had that over there? Somebody over there? Nobody over there, but I'm going to throw one anyways. Okay. All right. Faith, hope, and love. This is the three key graces of the Spirit, the, the trilogy of virtue that we have here. It's faith. That's the heart looking upward to God. Love is the heart looking outward to others. And hope is the heart looking forward to heaven. And this is not faith, just, you know, believing that there's a God, as a lot of people do. Well, I think there's a higher power out there, some God, sure. It's not just faith. It's it's faith that puts your complete trust and, and submission too. It's not just faith that there is a God, it's faith in what God has done for you in sending Jesus to be your Lord and Savior to forgive you of your sin by which we become a new creation by putting our trust in him. That's what it means to have faith, to, to put that trust in him. And when that is done, that's evidenced now by a new attitude and new characteristics. Notice that they have a love now for the saints. It's not just love for the saints, it's a love for all the saints. Isn't that great? See, I think some of us might have, you know, a love for, a selective love. It's a love for some people, but some of those people that aren't very loving, man, I'm not gonna love them until I start seeing some love coming my way from them, right? And we can be very selective in our love, but these people are like, man, I've been made new in Christ. And I have, by his grace, received his love, when I was a wretched sinner, understand the kind of love that you've received because that is going to motivate you now to love others. There's gonna be people that it's gonna be hard to love. But when you recognize, I was not easy to love. God had no reason to love me, and yet he did. Demonstrated that great grace upon me. So Lord, help me to love like you loved me. And these people now, as they've seen the gospel take shape in their life, as they've been born again, as they've been living for the Lord, it's been evidenced by the love that they have for all the saints. And not just a love, but they have this hope of heaven. I love that, verse five. Because the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, this is what Paul's thankful for. That they know there's more to come, that they're not just living for the things of this world. They have a hope of what is to come, that that this is not it. And let me say, my friends, that we need hope today like never before. Because you look at what's going on, and there's a lot of people that can get very hopeless. And when we begin to lose hope, we begin to lose motivation to continue on. There was, in 1965, a naval aviator, James B. Stockdale, who became one of the first American pilots to be shot down during the Vietnam War. As a prisoner of the Viet Cong, he spent seven years as a POW, during which he was frequently tortured in an attempt to break him and get him to denounce the U.S. involvement in the war. He was chained for days at a time with his hands above his head, so that he could not even swat the mosquitoes. Today, he still cannot bend his left knee and walks with a severe limp from having his leg broken by his captors and never reset. One of the worst things done to him was that he was held in isolation away from the other American POWs and allowed to see only his guards and interrogators. How could anyone survive seven years of such treatment? As he looks back on the time, Stockdale says that it was his hope that kept him alive. Hope of one day going home, that each day, could be the day of his release. Without hope, 
He knew that he would die in hopelessness as others had done. Such is the power of hope that it can keep one alive when nothing else can. And it's hope that we need today. See, the hope of heaven is not just that destination for us. It's our motivation to keep living for Jesus in spite of this world becoming more and more evil, despite this world that seems to be more and more against us as believers in Christ. It's hope that this is not what I'm living for, but I have something far greater that I'm looking forward to. And all these things are just seen as a light affliction in comparison to the far greater weight of glory which is coming to us. I pray that we have that hope that keeps us moving on saying, not just, not just getting by, but thriving in this world to say, man, I can live for the Lord despite all that's going on and I wanna make much of him because I know that this is all temporal. There's something far greater coming. This hope was a natural byproduct of the gospel being heard and received. These believers have had the gospel shared with them and it's had that obvious effect. Look at verse six. When Paul speaks about the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God and truth. As you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the spirit. See, the word of God, this very truth of the gospel here, as Paul calls it, it's living and active. It's alive, and when that word goes out, it's that seed like Paul or Peter references it as in 1 Peter 1, verse 23, that the seed is that word of God. When that word goes out like that seed, it takes root in people's hearts that are open to it. And if it takes root in people's hearts, it's going to inevitably bear fruit. And that's how you know that the word has been received. These Colossian believers have embraced grace and fruit has now abounded in their lives. And Paul has seen that and he's thanking the Lord for it. He's rejoicing in it. And once they didn't need any superstar like Paul to come and deliver the goods, Paul hadn't even been there yet. It was just a faithful man like Epaphras who's not at the top of our list of you know, spiritual superstars in scripture that we would think of. In fact, some of you may not have even heard of Epaphras before today. But it takes a faithful God like Epaphras that hears the word and he brings it back now to his hometown and he begins to share it with others to where it takes root and fruit begins to be born and people are getting saved, church is planted and the gospel continues to go out around it. So you never know what kind of fruit is gonna come and how lives will be changed when we begin to step out and say, I wanna be that faithful minister. Oh, I may not be like a Paul. I might not be like so-and-so. But Lord, if I step out in faith, I know you can work through that. And you never know what's gonna happen as we step out. And we see the evidence of the power of the word of God and the gospel taking root in people's lives because it produced, look at that in verse eight, it produces love in the spirit. This church was marked by this love, love for all the saints. And there's a love in the spirit. Understand that this love isn't something that is just in us naturally or innately. This is not something that we can manufacture. It's not just something we can put on as a front. This is a love that really comes as the spirit of God begins to fill us. And the spirit is in us the moment we're born again. 
The Spirit seals us, Ephesians 1 tells us. And the evidence of that is love. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit. And, and when, when Paul writes that in Galatians, he's speaking uh, using a singular form. The fruit, singular, is love. It's demonstrated through joy, patience, kindness, and all the rest. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. If we're going to be loving people, if we're going to be fruitful people, guess what? We need the Spirit filling us and overflowing in us. Maybe you're here today, and worship team, you can come up. Maybe you're here today, and this is not something that's taken root in you because you've never understood the gospel, and you've never responded to the good news of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here, and this is all new to you, or you're watching online, and you've not understood the message of Jesus that he came to this world as one of us to identify with us, and he went to the cross to die for you and for me. See, Jesus took the judgment of God for our sins. He paid the penalty for your sin and my sin, and he rose again so that you and I could have life and life eternally if we put our trust in him. Have you turned away from your sin, which is to repent? Have you turned away from your sin and put your trust in Jesus? That's what it means to be born again. And when you do that, you become a new creation. Maybe you never experienced that before, and that that seed of the gospel has never taken root in your heart and is not born fruit. Let that change today. Maybe you're here today and you've responded to the gospel a long time ago, but you've kind of drifted and you've waned a little bit in that vibrancy. And you need a fresh filling of the Spirit. You say, man, I, I want to see more of you, God, and less of me active in my life. I need to surrender myself. I want the Spirit to fill and overflow me so that Clearly, Jesus, you're seen in my life. That love is demonstrated. Maybe those are the ways that you need to respond today to the word. Let's take some time to allow God to work in us and pray those things into your life here today. Let's stand. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day to come and worship you, to wait on you. To spend time in your word, Lord. Just continue your work in us, Jesus. Reveal to us the things that we need from you, God. Lord, for those that have not responded to the gospel, would you call them to you? Let them see, Lord. It's just a matter of saying, I surrender. I put my trust in you, Jesus. Be my Lord, my Savior, the one that forgives my sin, Lord. Would you do that in people's lives? Save them today. Let them come and call out to you. And for those that have been maybe weak, weary, who have been wavering or wandering from you, God, may you just draw them back and fill them afresh and new with your spirit today. Lord, we might see more and more fruit abound in and through our lives today. We ask this in your name. Amen.